Welcome to the Living Out Podcast. I'm your host, Darren Steele. And in this episode, we're going to be doing an interview, part of my Living Out Leadership series with Mark Green. But before we get into that, on the podcast, we talk about everything from LGBTQ rights and equality, social justice and personal growth. And in my work as a life coach, I work with gay men to help them use their difference to make a difference. So I'm actually really excited today to have Mark Green on the podcast. He is an Emmy-winning animator, author, speaker, parent, and senior editor at the Good Men Project, a very busy guy. He's the founder of Remaking Manhood, a Facebook community promoting a wider-ranging conversation about masculinity. His articles on masculinity have been shared half a million times on social media with 20 million page views. He's written and spoken about men's issues at Salon, the Shriver Report, Huffington Post, HLN, BBC, New York Times. He's the author of the Little Me book, sorry, the Little Me Too book for men, which we're going to be discussing primarily today, uh, and Remaking Manhood. He's the co-author, along with Dr. Salia Bava, of The Relational Book for Parenting. So, Mark, welcome, and thank you for coming on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Darren. Oh, you're welcome. So like I said, I've been um, very excited about this particular interview. I've been watching what you've been writing on Medium and then paying paying attention to what you're doing with some videos and such on Facebook. And there's definitely an, an, an alignment because you're talking about masculinity, the problem of uh, men accepting the feminine and what not your term, but what you're using as man box culture. And we're going to get into all these details, but let's let the audience know about like who you are and what was it like for you growing up and what was the defining moment that, or maybe there's more than one that sort of brought you into this work, why you wanted to start talking about masculinity and the man box culture. Right. Well, like um, many, you know, sort of CIS white, presenting male guys, I, um, I have a, an external presentation to the world, which I was taught in no uncertain terms was going to be the right one. Uh, if I wanted to get down the street without getting beaten up or abused or bullied or policed. Uh, and I have that performance that I do and have done for, uh, for decades. Um, but my internal, uh, stories about myself, about my identity, are, are in my case, much more gender fluid. And uh, that is a performance that remains closeted for me for the most part. I don't, I don't play much with the rules of gender out on the street because my generation of men uh, were taught that if you do that, you're, you're putting yourself in significant danger. And I think that's a story that LGBT people carry to this day. And I am... Uh, just startled by the by the sheer courage of people who move into a public performance of a masculinity that is not uh, defined by the narrow confines of our dominant culture of masculinity. So I, I want to say here and now that that my deep respect for men who are pushing the boundaries on what's uh, an acceptable version of masculinity. I I have absolute respect for that process, and I'm trying in my own way to create a conversation about that. Uh, a sec, you know, besides the fact that that I 
have my secrets, which I would suggest to you that most men have uh, on some level or another. Uh, I also hit a really serious change point at the birth of my son. And I was a stay-at-home dad with him for a number of years. And that, that you know, the, the man box rules uh, dictate that we're supposed to be, you know, providers, not caregivers, that men are not caregivers. And when a man takes on, you know, the daily responsibility of caring for a child, becoming, uh, you know, a primary caregiver, and there are millions of men doing this now for their children, um, it's transformational. It absolutely breaks so many rules of the man box that you almost can't go back. But in addition to the relationship and the, and the, the new set of strengths that it taught me, uh, I, as, uh, as a man could have, um, I also, uh, I also began to wonder what, what was the world going to tell this little boy about being a man? And the more I thought about it, the more I began to explore the questions of what is our dominant culture of masculinity? What does it teach us to be ashamed of? And what does it punish us for seeking in our lives? And that's where the work really began to take off for me, where I began to write and read and explore about this subject. Do you mind if I ask sort of um, uh, the timeline around that? Because there's a couple things you mentioned. I want to talk about your son briefly and then I'm 53 and I noticed there's certainly things generational as for myself as a gay man how I approach the world mm-hmm. and then how someone who's 23 mm-hmm. in the LGBT community so what's your generational age I'm I'm nearly 60 okay and so how old is your son now he's 13 13 and what was it like in your group of male friends, what did they think? What did they say? Did they support, encourage, or sort of sit on the fence, unsure of why you were being a stay-at-home dad? Well, we we live in a culture where friendships aren't all that common anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, man box culture's biggest and most damaging impact for men is that it teaches us to uh, to remain isolated. Uh, to not form um, friendships or relationships that are, in fact, authentic or have any any significant component where we where we share um, sort of a more authentic side of ourselves. So there were a lot of dads at that time in our cohort. Whenever you have a child, uh, you you tend to end up with a group of people who had who had a child at the same you know within the same window that either worked with the same hospital or the same doula or what have you. So you end up with this cohort of human beings who are all basically bug-eyed because they just had their first baby. And, um, and so in that moment, um, many of us uh, were just happy to have somebody else to, you know, attempt to do, uh, you know, parenting alongside of or to share notes with. There, generationally, this question of being a stay-at-home dad, most of the men that I have met in this conversation, uh, you know, it was about 10 years ago that, that it really became sort of a publicly known thing. And there was a whole pushback, uh, you know, what are you babysitting? You know, what did you lose your job? What, you know, what, why are you doing that? <laughs> Give me one reason why any self-respecting man would raise a child. And mm. And commercials, you know, huge corporate brands were depicting, you know, stay-at-home dads as 
utterly inept, you know, and, and unable to prepare a meal and dropping their kids on their heads and whatnot. And, and we in the, in the stay at home dad community, the blogging community began to push back really hard on that stuff. And big changes began to happen in terms of how that, how men were viewed uh, as, as stay at home dads, as caregivers, as, as human beings who could form an intimate caring relationship with a child and guide them through their days. If they're, if the, if our partners were, were working, had, you know, had careers that were their focus. And in that way, um, I think we changed the whole conversation around that part of, of, uh, masculinity. It's interesting. I, off the top of my head, I cannot remember who the company is and I don't know if it's a commercial that's in the States or if it's Canada specific, I'm in Toronto. Uh, but there's something on the television right now that's really advocating men take paternity leave. Mm. And there's, there's an, an image of like this guy's got like a really big beard. He looks like he's sort of scruffy and you'd almost think he'd be like a tough guy and says something like, you know, when, when he said, when my little boy said, daddy, the first time puddles, puddles in my eyes. And uh, I thought, this is really interesting. Mm-hmm. They're showing this soft, this so-called feminine side of a man, and they're pushing. Uh, the statement is said somewhere, and they're like, "You will never regret taking this time to spend with your newborn child." Right? Yeah. There's a there is a, a big effort um, in terms of paternity leave, and it's an it's an argument that I think some brands feel is a safe space to go ahead and, you know, begin pushing. And so when a, when a, you know, commercial product decides to align itself with an issue around masculinity, it is clearly, they feel it's in their best interest that they will, that they will create more brand loyalty with a certain category of men that they're in pursuit of. You can treat that as a cynical exercise in profitability, or you can see it as companies beginning to realize that um, that they have a role to play in terms of what our public dialogue is. And this issue of maternity leave for men, we, we know that uh, uh, very few men have jobs that allow for it, but we also know that the men in the U.S. who do have that option rarely take it because they have this um they have this belief that they will be viewed as being less than real men if they in you know embrace that openly and take that full amount of leave so it's a you have policy and then you have our perception of masculinity lagging behind policy and then and then sadly you have policy lagging as well in terms of most jobs for men but this idea of bonding with your child, connecting emotionally, is something that, you know, the men of my father's generation uh, would have considered laughable. N- not so much that they didn't do it or didn't have that experience. Some men did. But the idea that we would view that as a, as a public policy necessity, it, they, they, just wouldn't, they just wouldn't have understood that at all. It wouldn't have made any sense. No, and I'm just thinking uh, good friends of mine, uh, uh, they recently had their second child. In both cases, they did a shared time off. So she took six months and then he took the next Mm. six months off of work. And the experience was phenomenal for the two of them. And I think they're going to see a complete 
completely different outcome in how they raise their children and sort of the union that this husband and wife has together in this moment that they can share that experience fairly equally. Mm. I I just I just can't say enough about how we as men are taught that that we have certain uh, capabilities and capacities which are which are typically have to do with leadership and toughness and dominance and control and aggression and all of the you know money making and and all of these ideas that a man is what he produces does whereas in this world of relationships where we often falter so badly um when a man takes time to be with his infant child and to see and understand what it means to be fully and completely connected with by another human being, in this case, your infant daughter or son, suddenly your perception of what it means to be human shifts away from this narrow set of definitions that our culture wants to dump on us uh, to something far more human and far more compassionate. That's interesting. Um, it it will probably come back to this in a, a different way a little later on in the episode where we'll talk about like where does this start? Like where do we start teaching um, about masculinity and the balance between the masculine and the feminine? And maybe we can now spring into the man box mm-hmm. and and what is it? And how do you define or frame masculinity? What's the foundation for the work you're doing and what you're teaching? Well, there was a guy named Paul Kivel in um, in Oakland in the early 1980s, and he worked with a group called the Oakland Men's Project. And they went around to middle and high schools and talked to uh, boys and girls and asked each group sort of what does it mean to be a woman? What does it be to be a man? And, and um and in the case of the boys, they got remarkably consistent answers uh, from boys, all different populations, all different schools, different um, ethnicities, et cetera. And the rules of the man box came down to some pretty simple, uh, you know, ideas. One is, number one is don't show your emotions. Uh, there was also be a be a provider, not a caregiver, be a leader, be aggressive, be dominant, have the last word in all conversations, be heterosexual, heteronormative, also be sexually active, get lots of girls, um, also care about and talk about sports. And um, so these sets of ideas about being a real man uh, I went into a school a couple of years ago in New York here and, and did the man box conversation, asked the boys what it means to be a real man, and they came up with the same set of answers. And so we have decades in which this this man box idea of masculinity uh, has remained relatively unchanged. Now, I know there's some shift going on for for younger boys and men in terms of how stringent this feels to them. You know, they feel like they have a, I think there's a little more movement in terms of uh, gender, sexuality, race. But for the most part, these ideas are still out there. And the challenge with the man box is not that, you know, you get a memo. The challenge with the man box is that this set of rules are brutally enforced uh, with policing and bullying and violence and at the extreme end, murder. So, uh you know, the, the idea that, that boys and men somehow 
have or had a choice in terms of whether they aligned themselves with these ideas is ridiculous. And in fact, it's my belief that the process by which man box culture bullies and, and abuses boys and men to conform to these ideas is, uh, it goes on so consistently and so pervasively over, over a period of decades and in fact, it carries on in one way or another throughout the whole course of men's lives that it, it has a traumatic impact on, on their uh, emotional state, sense of identity, performance of masculinity, connection, all of these crucial aspects of whether they can or cannot actually form relationships at all. Yeah. I was thinking the, the way you framed the interview um, with the boys and they were talking about sports and play sports. My experience was very odd. I mean, first of all, I, I knew I was different as an adolescent. I didn't quite have the language for it. And I don't know if it was just my dad or the fact that he had emigrated with his parents from Germany. He was 13 years old at 1956. So I was growing up as a, a kid in the 70s. And my father was never into sports. I think he played golf for work kind of as a, a way to network. We went to one Blue Jays baseball game, and I think my dad asked me, what did you think? I, was, I didn't really care for it. He's like, okay, that's fine. We don't ever have to go. I was never forced into sports. I think I tried out for a couple of things, uh, never really liked it. It wasn't my thing. I was always the last one picked for the team, so I already had that sort of negative not fitting in. But it makes me think about a lot of um, young men who grow up and then become gay men who were able to pass more easily and fit in more easily by partaking in this man box culture, by playing the sports. So if they could play the sports, if they could prove athleticism, they could also fit in and be accepted whether or not they had yet come out as being gay. And that's an interesting issue within the challenge of the, the taught man box masculinities. Well, the, the the whole sports thing, I think, is designed uh, twofold. One is to allow aggressive behavior that's socially sanctioned, but also it guarantees an almost endless um, source of conversation for men that does not include or involve their own authentic uh, sense of the world or their experience of life and living. Mm. Um, so, you know, whoever we are and however we are covering uh our authentic selves if we weigh in on on a sports conversation there's a sense of shared um of, of shared interest there is a a, a dynamic on i mean look at the i mean culturally the system is just primed to keep that conversation going and it gives us a sense of connection and meaning when in fact it's it's just a, a facade uh, of connection. It's a it's a false version of it, but it doesn't mess with politics. It doesn't, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things about it that that make it a safe space. If you want to have a culture of social proximity, we we call it um, relationships of proximity. That is, whoever's standing next to you, you just plug into the appropriate subject matter, have that conversation. A lot of men, in terms of their uh, connection in the world they they don't they don't have authentic connections so they do these relationships of proximity and you ask them who their friends are they say oh yeah i have friends down at the gym or they say yeah i'm friends with the other dads at my kid's school and but 
if they change gyms, they just drop all those relationships and pick up the new set of ones in the next one. Or the, your, your kid goes to a different school, you just switch over because, frankly, all those relationships are pretty much the same. And who cares? You know, there's always you just plug yourself in. So we end up with this larger story that men rely on their partners for social connection, mm-hmm. that men that men let let social connection come out of the workplace, that men don't actually, you know, you ask men who their best friend is and they say, oh, yeah, that's so and so. And you say, when's the last time you spoke to him? And they say three years ago. Yeah. We are essentially um, not connecting in authentic ways and therefore those relationships don't resonate for us. And uh, we end up in a culture of intense isolation, uh, which includes dramatic health impacts for men. I, I don't know if you're aware of the, the statistics on social isolation in, in the U.S., but the AARP did a study in 2010, mm-hmm. and they discovered that one in three Americans age 45 and older is chronically lonely. It means they don't have a single person to talk about the issues in their life with. That's 42 million Americans 45 and older. Wow. And Cigna did a study in 2018, and they, you know, AARP was doing their their focus group, right, 45 and older. But uh, Cigna did everybody. And what they discovered is that one out of every two Americans feels sometimes or always alone. And in fact, the impact was particularly bad uh, among very young people, 18 to 22 or something to that effect. But you can go, you can just Google either of these, Cigna loneliness study. The impact of social isolation in terms of physical health is dramatic. The, um, the impact of being chronically lonely is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. It increases the likelihood of heart disease, diabetes, neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's, obesity, um, just a, a raft of, of illnesses that will kill you dead. So we have a culture of masculinity which, which teaches us to hide our authentic selves which teaches us to rely on relationships of proximity. And then we, we have these dramatic uh, numbers around social isolation, and men are dying earlier because of it, men and women. Because women are, are, are of course, at the mercy of their, their, if they happen to be married to a man, uh, if their partner is male, they're, they're sort of subject to the social limitations of that human being. Yeah. And almost a, like as a dependence on one level, and there's two things that came to mind while you were saying this, going back to the, the sports, and I think to a lot of men, and I worked for almost 15 years in a personal training, health and fitness, and 10 years in a, a high-end downtown uh, fitness facility towards the in the financial district, so very mm-hmm. type A, very aggressive. And the dominant conversation, um, most of my clients were women or gay men or very open-minded men. But I would hear the other straight male trainers, the constant conversation was such and such a statistic, Mm so-and-so sports athlete doing this, doing that, and that was it. And it's a superficiality that, as you said, I guess this... It's a, it's a kind of performance. This is the only way we can connect about who has the most knowledge about uh, this sport or who was traded or how horrible that was, and it makes no connection. But mm-hmm. I, hadn't made, I hadn't made this connection that you suggested, so who are your friends? But you could change jobs, change gyms, change states, change countries, and you could pick up that conversation with anyone to feel like you belong, but you're not connecting. You're not having any emotional connection, really, 
um, unless you are two people that realize that this is just a facade and tend to go more deeply into it. And then the older generation, men would retire and many of them would die within six months because the only thing that they had that gave them an identity was their job. Right. Well, you can look at this also from the standpoint of the, you know, the angry white male voter, uh, the basically man box culture is about doing right. And, and because it's set up the way it is, how much money do you make? You know, how much sex are you having? All of those things. Um, you have to prove it every day. Men have to constant. I mean, the, the question isn't how much money did you make yesterday? How much did you make today? Did you get, you know, you must, you might have a number of, uh, women in your life yesterday again remember this is and and this expectation is you know god forbid you're a boy growing up in america trying to fit into man box culture and you're not interested in girls you're you're either not interested or you're gay this is a this is a double whammy for for people who um are attempting to to figure out who they actually are but instead they're caught up proving this stuff and i I know a number of gay men who have told me that they, they, you know, of, of attempting to have sex, of attempting to have sex with a girl in order to fit in or prove something either to themselves. I have no idea. The complexity of it is so vast. I can barely grasp it. But this idea that we're, that we're having to prove all this stuff all the time and that we're on this treadmill of proving it over and over again. Well, guess what? You know, you're going to age out at some point. Your knees are going to give out. You're not going to be able to play sports. Your one-liners aren't going to work anymore. And and God forbid you should fall ill. Uh, and sooner or later, your earning power is not going to be what it was. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, having grown up in man box culture, having lived this isolated experience of being human, um, there is no – man box culture does not encourage self-reflection. It doesn't encourage any sort of expression of authenticity. Our culture of masculinity doesn't care who we are as individuals. It doesn't care what our experience of the world is. And so you end up at 58 years of age. Suddenly, you can't, you can't prove – keep proving this, this treadmill of masculine dominance and, and earning and sexuality. You can't prove it anymore. And man box culture says, well, that's it for you, kicks you to the curb, and this younger herd of men move on. And a lot of, a lot of men in America, in my estimation, are carrying a huge amount of rage about this set of rules that they succeeded at, they proved, they proved were central to their lives, and it turns out not to matter. Uh, and and man box culture told us what it was. It was survival yeah. of the fittest. It told were we not listening? Were we not paying attention? But now these men are so full of rage and anger because anger is one of the few things that we're allowed to express as men in man box culture. Mm. And instead of looking inside and saying maybe some of this is on me, they're blaming immigrants. They're blaming LGBT people. They're blaming women. They're blaming feminists. They're blaming everyone but themselves. And this is where that voting block comes from, this angry, rageful, lost voting, you know, voting block of men who are, in fact, voting against their own interests. Yeah. This, I think this might connect to uh, the idea of, not the idea, but the act of bullying. Um, I wouldn't say this, this anger and this rage is a kind of bullying, but I imagine that enough of these people in a voting block by voting in a way that's mm-hmm. really detrimental overall, mm-hmm. 
this becomes part of this pattern of control and of hierarchy. And, and you, you described it really well. Uh, the two types of bullying, the, the bullying that happens kind of on the playground for the adolescents and teaching young men, young boys how to fit in. And then the bullying that happens among men, mm-hmm. like that pecking order or the locker room talk. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that's really important to understand is that the process by which we actually teach boys starting at age three and four, I mean, this stuff doesn't begin when you're 16. It begins when you're uh, an infant and it becomes more um, socially or publicly, it becomes part of how how we operate in community at about age three or four. And the language or the ideas may be a little soft at that age, but they firm up pretty quickly. And If you fail to perform masculinity properly, if you fail to operate from within the man box, and when when Paul Kivel did this work in in the 1980s, he drew a box, he put the words inside the box that that mean a real man, and then he said, what do you call people when they fail to perform this? What do you call a boy who who isn't getting this done? And the boy said, well, you call him a girl or a sissy or a fag. You call him gay. And... I think in that moment, what we're seeing is both uh, pressure for boys to conform to a socially isolating model of masculinity, i.e. signing their own death warrant down the road, because we know what social isolation does to us as human beings who are hardwired for connection, who are in fact hardwired to be in community and connect. But also you're denigrating women and LGBTQ people. And so you're setting up, you, if, if you cut boys off from genuine connection, the only thing they have left in order to try to form community is to perform this version of masculinity, which is built on the idea that women and LGBTQ people are less. Mm-hmm. In other words, when we say man up to a boy, man up, be a real man, what we're actually saying to them is don't be those other people because they're less than you. So you mm-hmm. you you create a version of masculinity. You create a culture of masculinity that is one of inequality. Couple that with a with a with a culture of bullying and violence, and then name the ones who are less women and LGBTQ people. In that moment, you're driving an engine of violence toward those populations, and we see that play out in Me Too. We see that play out in the ongoing violence against. Uh, people in the gay community and the trans community. Um, and, and that's the reason why a person like myself never came out because yeah. that engine of violence was right in my face. I saw it. I knew and understood that my performance of manhood would either make me one of the primary targets or give me some shelter. And the cruel part about man box culture is this. We all knew the script. We were all taught the script. We knew that we had to denigrate women and LGBTQ people in order to be allowed to not be a target, in order to fit in. And the kids and the boys in our community who were awkward or who who just couldn't quite pull off the trick of, of appearing you know, like we were getting the job done of masculinity, those guys, the chess club guys, the awkward guys, there, was, there were kids with disabilities. All of those kids became the permanent targets because a culture of dominance and pecking order and hierarchy and abuse 
needs a needs a a um, permanent population of targets: women, LGBTQ people, boys who aren't fitting in, because. As you are in that culture and as you are struggling to find meaning without any authentic expression, it creates anxiety. It creates immense anxiety. Am I doing this right? Is someone going to catch me doing it wrong? Is my secret going to be found out? You know, you're constantly looking over your shoulder to see who's going to bully you next about how you're getting it done. This creates immense anxiety. And the release for that anxiety is to attack someone outside the box and do it publicly Mm -hmm. and let them watch you. Let your friends watch you. Let the victims watch you. And in that moment, you get a free pass on on that sense of anxiety. You vent it out at someone else, and you get both. You both reinforce your position inside the the man box uh, hierarchy, and you vented out this horrible sense of anxiety. But it comes back again, and I think this ties mm-hmm. into uh, any of the major, uh, you know, the white nationalist movement, the the MRA movements. These men who seek through violence to validate their masculinity. And it comes out of being so traumatized and so wounded and so isolated and so distorted and abused that they have no other uh, method of seeking validation. It, it, the question that comes to mind when I've, I've seen this in the media um, with those types of individuals is, what are you so afraid of? And you've already answered that. They're afraid of actually... Or rather, they don't know how to connect with being a human being, being empathetic, being vulnerable, because they haven't been taught that. Well, they've actually been traumatized away from it. Right. It's not a, I, I think we're all born with these capacities. I think if you look at, a, at, at an infant, their capacity to connect in emotional and emotive ways is quite pronounced. Michael Kimmel talks about if you watch a, a, a boy who's two or three deal with a wounded bird, you see deep empathy and, 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 and compassion in those moments. But we beat, we, it's not that we, haven't, we don't teach it to kids, we beat it out of them. We literally punish them for exhibiting those tendencies. One of the things we do is we take this, this raft of powerful relational capacities that we're all born with. Uh, and this includes empathy, this includes connecting across difference, this includes caregiving. We wrongly gender them as feminine in the case of our sons. And then when our sons exhibit those behaviors, uh, uh, you know, uh, emotional expression of the wrong kind or the need for more closer friendship and connection, we then shame them by denigrating the feminine. So we take half of this raft of powerful and, and you know, leadership and toughness and, and, and uh, being able to keep going under stress. Those are all valid human capacities, whether you're a man or a woman. But we we let men have that set of capacities, and then we strip them of of another layer of capacities, which include the ability to listen and to hold uncertainty and to connect across difference and to to make space for, uh, for other people's voices. All of these are relational capacities. We strip them of those while we strip girls of affirmations around toughness, strength, leadership. So we have populations of boys and girls, each of which are, are only, only have access to half of the human capacities they should. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, you've touched on the, the aspect of empathy. And Brene Brown, of course, talks a lot about vulnerability and empathy. Mm-hmm. And she's written about leadership and, and courage and vulnerability. And there's a quote, from your Me Too book. And it's, 
The list of central relational capacities that man-box culture suppresses include empathy. The suppression of boys and men's empathy is no accident. It's the suppression of empathy that the empathy that makes a culture of ruthless competition, bullying, and codified inequality possible. In the, it is in the absence of empathy that men fail to see women's equality and many other social issues for what they are: simple and easily enacted moral imperatives. So how do we create a different morality? How do we lead these men that are so far to one side of having literally been indoctrinated, been been squashed down by man box culture? How do we start bringing them over somewhere towards the middle? Well, I I believe, uh, and I I write about this in my book, I believe there is a, uh, there's a small percentage of men who are arguably somewhat evolved and and woke, uh, who care about these issues deeply and are public about it. I believe there's a fairly small percentage, 10, 15, I don't know, maybe as much as 20 uh, percent on the other end, who are deeply committed to sort of retrogressive patriarchal views of manhood, who are, are just simply unwilling to make any changes or to grow in any way toward a more uh, equal society. And then in the middle, you have this huge population of millions and millions of men who are relatively silent. And they are focused on the day-to-day process of, you know, getting, getting the job done and taking care of their responsibilities and doing whatnot. But they all grew up in man box culture, right? So they also have a personal history of the denigration of uh, women and LGBTQ people. They, they, they know and understand the violence and bullying that is right there still in their day-to-day lives. In the workplace, it, it, it may be less about getting shoved down on the playground and more about being cut out of, a, uh, of an upcoming project if you come down on the wrong side of some alpha male's uh, view of what you ought to be thinking politically. But they know about all this stuff. And, and I have something that I write about called the integrity bind. And, and the idea here is that men are struggling to get off the dime and take a position on this stuff because their own history of speaking uh, in denigrating ways about difference and other people um, is, is top of mind to them when the moment arrives where they have to begin to advocate for women or advocate for uh, you know, sexual or gender, uh, you know, diversity. And, and so they're kind of stuck in this place and, and there's a whole cultural narrative. I don't know if you remember the Gillette ad when it came out, just all hell broke loose, yep. right? Because mm-hmm. primarily because they had this little snippet of audio at the beginning that said toxic masculinity. But regardless of that, one of the things that came out very clearly in social media uh, and there and there were troll farms driving this, and I mean this was this was a much more organized uh, blowback against the Gillette ad than just guys deciding they didn't like it. Uh, and one of the things they kept saying, I kept seeing all the time across multiple platforms, was Gillette has no integrity. They have no integrity to speak about this. And, and for those who, for the three of us in the world who didn't find out about that ad, um, Gillette was basically saying. Men need to step up and and stand up for equality and for, for you know for women and, and all the communities that are being oppressed. And they they said you have no integrity around this because you've never spoken about this before. 
and because you you sell pink razors at a at a premium price, so you're you're taking advantage of women and what? A, so they had this whole firestorm around Gillette's right to speak, and nobody was talking about the message of the ad. They were all talking about this integrity bind, right? How do you get to speak? You've never spoken this way before. You're a hypocrite. Shut up. Mm-hmm. And this, it, this attack, this assault on Gillette wasn't aimed at Gillette. It was aimed at the larger population of silent men. It was a reinforcement mm-hmm. of the integrity bind. And we know if we're standing around the water cooler and some alpha guy says, hey, and says some comment about a woman's body who's passing in that moment. There may be five other guys, and and the silence is deafening. Right? People may say, um, "All right, I, I don't agree with this, and I'm out of here." But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna confront Bob about this because that'll just start a whole other thing, right? Mm-hmm. But if you do, if one man does say, "You know, Bob, don't talk that way," I guarantee you, Bob's going to turn around and he's going to say, "Oh yeah, what? What do you want to you want a fucker? You you what are you a feminist?" What are you talking mm-hmm. about this for? I've heard you say worse things. And he will bear down on you fiercely. And he'll track you for the rest of your time at that company because these guys don't let go of that stuff. Yeah. And in that moment, men are making the decision to remain silent. And they're saying to themselves, you know what? I'm just going to look after the women in my own life, my own circle of friends. I'm going to look after my daughters. I'm going to make sure they go to college, make sure they're empowered. I'm going to do the work there, but I'm not going to confront this guy. And in that moment, we remain silent. Masculinity continues to be defined as a culture of inequality and a culture of aggression and dominance. And the other five guys at, around the cooler, they may have been thinking the same thing. But because we all remain silent, there's no reinforcement. I mean, I actually talk about an idea of being an ally to the ally. We, ha- mm-hmm. we have to teach ourselves to be ready to speak up when somebody denigrates somebody else. But the second step, the, the, the moment after that, are when someone next to you ste- steps up and, makes a, and, and challenges uh, hate speech, you got to be right there. Open your damn mouth. Mm-hmm. Follow up. Yeah, I agree with him. Because in that moment, you create a much bigger echo among that group of men. And you change this from being one guy who's, who's the party pooper, who's raining on the parade, to a culture of change around how we engage this stuff and, and, and men can then come out. And so for me, this population of millions of silent men are caught up in this integrity bind. They're not ready to be allies, but, but I'm telling a man, go stand in the mirror in the morning and say this stuff and see what it sounds like coming out of your mouth. No, don't talk that way. No, I disagree. Or I agree with Bob, right? Yeah. Don't talk that way. Get ready to be an ally to an ally. The population. Can I just say something here, real quick? Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I when I talk about these alpha males being the result of trauma and abuse, I do not forgive them their actions. I do not. I have I have spent my life being a target of those guys, and now that I'm publicly talking about masculinity and talking about the moral imperative of, e- of equality and all this stuff, they're in my feet all the time. I. I say, look, I understand that you got twisted and distorted and damaged, but if you can't see the moral, the, the, the moral failing of, of a, a philosophy of hate and abuse, then I have no sympathy for you, and my empathy for you is very limited. Because the people mm-hmm. that are suffering hurt and damage and abuse 
because of those guys. So understand, you know, that 10% down on the other end, I'm not going to try to change their mind because I think they, I think when they have their come to Jesus moment, it won't be because of me. Um, they, they will ultimately come to the end of the road of their philosophy and it will be a dark and terrible moment for them. But for me, I'm talking about these guys in the middle who are silent, who we can reach and who we can connect with. And for those guys, I do have some empathy. I do have some sympathy mm-hmm. for them because I think they can be brought over if, if we have a compassionate message about how they got silenced and man box culture is silencing. <laughs> What I see, what I see in your messaging, your messaging I'm and I'm getting a weird echo, um, is that I think you're being that bridge. Um, the, the last few videos that you've posted on your Remaking Manhood uh, Facebook page, you're not hitting somebody over the head. You're explaining something in, in really clear, very easy to understand terms with... Uh, there's a there's an intensity to your messaging that is empathetic on one level but is I'm witnessing it as somehow going man to man and I mention it in that way because I think if you're trying to reach that silent group that you're talking about that is stuck in man box culture doesn't want to yet play ally to the ally if if it were to be some very flamboyant gay guy saying, okay, guys, we got to be like more, you know, that ain't going to work. That ain't going to communicate the message. Sometimes we have to use this, okay, I'm white, I'm cis male, I'm intelligent, I can communicate this information because that's level one of how we reach people. You know, I, I, it's, it's interesting that you frame it that way. I'm, you know, it's funny, I, 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 my father who passed away about four years ago at age 89, um, <laughs> I, 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 this is a bit of a digression, but I, I think it's interesting. I, I mm-hmm. all his life, he had a number of, of male friends who were gay. And, um, and these are, you know, like it, it turned out he was a member of the Highlanders, which was primary, primarily guys returning from the second world war. Uh, out of the Navy at the university he went to. And this was a, this wasn't a fraternity, but it was a large house that these guys could all uh, live in and go to the college on the GI bill and whatever. And, and it was late in his life that I sort of figured out that most of the men in the Highlanders were gay. And, Mm -hmm. and I began to track the different men that I had known in his life. Um, and I won't name them, but, but some of them were very important to me as a child. They were friends of the family. They were whatever. So my dad is in the last few months of his life and I'm asking him some questions that I've sort of have come to me. He's laying in, in, in a hospital bed. And I say to him, dad, you had a, you had a lot of friends who were, were gay. And he said, yeah. And I said, why, why did you have so many, why did you have so many friends that were gay, dad? And he looked at me and he raised both of his hands and he made hard fists. His knuckles stood out and he said, cause they're not like this. And he laid his hands back down. Mm-hmm. In my experience as a young man, there were, I, I never had a problem with women. I never had a problem with gay people. 
because they were safe. They weren't going to do to me what straight guys were going to do to me, which is be violent, mm. policing, brutal. I mean, just a, a daily a daily search for the safe corner in the room, right? So mm. for me, my relationship with, with uh, the gay kids at school, with, um, with gay men later in my life, was I don't know what's going on here, but I don't have to track a threat. I don't have to track violence. I don't have to... Th- I don't, this person is not going to try to define themselves in by by dominating me. Now, you know, it's a kind of a simplification, but but generally speaking, it's the truth of my life. When I meet a gay man, I am like, "Hey, how are you?" I don't have to first say, "Hmm, what's going to go on with this guy?" And in that regard, um, I think the idea that how we message to men. Uh, this this idea of how do, how do we talk to that that sixty percent? I think there is a I think the conversation is a lot more about who can I feel safe around than anything else, and, and that right. and I, I hear men talk a lot, especially young men. I hear them talk a lot about feeling abused by girls. Like uh, girls can be really mean, so there are no simp- oversimplifications here, but. I think that for us, um, at least for me as a child, my threat tracking was always around men and always has been and continues to be. So, mm-hmm. um, in fact, learning to love men was quite a journey for me, learning to, to actually have loving, caring relationships with men. And I had to literally say out loud, I'm, I'm scared of men. I hate men. Men have done nothing for me in my life but but make me feel anxious and frightened and angry. And I'm sick to death of being alone. I'm sick of it. Mm. And when you realize mm. that, the, that, that only through genuine, loving, caring relationships with men can we live a fully rich and engaged life, and you realize you're just lonely, then you have to mm. actively seek a solution, some kind of damn solution. For me, it was a, a it was men's work and a men's organization. But but you have to find a way to reach men who want connection and who care about that. And there's a growing number of them. Yeah. Well, this maybe leads into if we get into the gay men's community, and it it may speak to the larger you know lesbian, bisexual, trans, queer. Uh, identified but from my own perspective as you know as a gay man there's been some interesting challenges with masculinity man box culture and i've witnessed a lot of people who label as straight acting and first of all the word is hilarious because you were talking earlier about performing gender and that's essentially what's happening it's gay men trying to be more hyper masculine they advertise let's say online on a dating app as mask for mask or only into other dudes they'll say no femmes and they'll even kind of write apologies like sorry i'm not trying to be a hater it's just a preference and it's a total misnomer you know and at the same time you can go out to a gay club or a queer club and you'll hear other men saying hey girl which i've always found strange and a little bit problematic and languaging in the last five ten years people have played with rewriting it to be g r r l or they'll do b apostrophe atch or they'll spell it betch so we're trying to get away from what we're feminine 
versions of the language and and rewrite it in some way to still allow for that similar sounding vernacular uh, within the gay community, but to to give it some other kind of meaning. So many gay men just exist quite happily as they do within the, the general dominant culture. But then when we get deeper into it, I did an interview a little while ago with uh, my friend and colleague, a um, queer and gender philosopher, uh, sorry, a uh, uh, PhD professor. And he wrote an article called We Need to Talk About Toxic Gay Masculinity. And it's uh, Jeffrey Yovanone. And I just want to read what he wrote and then go into this with you. So he writes, gay culture, like the dominant culture, creates a hierarchy based on norms of masculinity. So this is like right in line with the the work that you're doing, Mark. And at the top of those, oh, sorry, at the top are those who occupy the position of what we might call the normate gay. Those who are thin, toned, muscular, white, cis, able-bodied, and express their gender in conventionally masculine ways. Despite pervasive stereotypes that gay men are improperly feminine in comparison to straight men, gay male culture often dictates that conventional masculinity is the most desirable. And this hierarchy of gay masculinity also contributes to our inescapable culture of sexual violence. Part of masculinity is domination over those deemed feminine, not solely for uh, those who possess female bodies. So sexual violence functions as one way to reinforce what it means to be masculine. So it's, it, it doesn't, it's not all pervasive, but it's certainly something we see in a lot of social media, especially on Instagram and on dating apps, where there is this rigid gay male man box culture mm. that is really reinforcing a hierarchy of no pun intended who's at the top in the gay male world right you know it it, it's interesting to note that the that that in a culture of dominance the dominant party becomes in some way whether we internalize that dominant um, performance whether it's gender race whatever it is and whether or not we're fully conscious of it, we then begin to mimic it. And I'm I, what, what brings to mind is the the question of skin skin color and lightness uh, in India, for instance. Um, if you're lighter brown skinned, you are considered to be better. And and I think it would shock Americans to go into um, uh, an Indian department store, or grocery store, and and look at at all of the hand creams, facial creams that literally say whitening on them as if it's for your teeth, right? Only it's for your skin. Because it, there's a general consensus that lighter colored uh, brown tones are better. And that's a that's a mimicking of uh, I think of of sort of the Caucasian ideal. And wow. it's it's tragic that we uh, that we take on the the person, but also imagine if you will, and I'm just you know I'm just trying to think through this. Imagine if you will the conduit that gets created when you're trying to get away from abuse, when you're trying to escape abuse in a dominant culture. The 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 conduit is to move toward a performance that matches the abuser, so that you mix in, you blend in. It's uh, you know corporate culture they call it covering, 
you roll your sleeves down to cover up your tattoos or you do mm-hmm. whatever you have to. You know, if you're if you're gay, you don't put a photo of yourself and your partner in your cubicle. This whole process of covering is really quite natural for human beings. We do it in a desperate attempt to survive in abusive contexts, right, in, mm. in abusive cultures. And in that way, it doesn't surprise me that the dominant uh, man box performance of masculinity is reflected in gay culture as being the most desirable. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, it, because it is, I mean, abuse is power, right? Dominance is power. It's self-destructive power. It mm-hmm. leads to bad outcomes. But uh, we all seek some kind of control in our lives, some kind of power. And mimicking the abuser is one way to move there, right? Mm-hmm. You, um, uh, you were mentioning in, uh, earlier about bullying and at the workplace, for example, somebody Bob going off about something and, and keeping silent. And you mm-hmm. use the term or the warfare, warfare term suppressing fire mm-hmm. as a way to control men and their freedom and the, the challenge of them not breaking that silence. Mm-hmm. So in a larger context, here you are in the United States with a current president compared to the last one, Obama. Mm-hmm. What is your take on th- this suppressing fire from the top down? Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting when you talk about if, if, you know, I can pretty much ask any listener. And by the way, I just want to put in here, I, uh, I came into this conversation fully aware that I might inadvertently trigger or cause pain for someone who's listening. Mm-hmm. And I want you to know that, that I, uh, I invite you to let me know if that's happened, how that's happened. But also, please understand that for me, it, it is... It's something I'm trying to do now, which is to not be afraid of failing in conversational spaces that are not the one I came from. My positionality is, for the most part, white CIS male. Mm-hmm. And I am trying very hard to have some courage and step into other spaces. And that's going to include the race conversation and some other ones. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, it's frightening for me. And I need to let go of that shit and pardon my French, and be in the conversations because that's where the work has to get done. And if I can just interject, I mean, that's why I wanted you to wanted to have you on this podcast because I've been following your work and I see, I read between the lines and it's integrity that you're writing with in the way that you're explaining what you need to explain, the way that you're including LGBT people and so congratulations on that. And and there's always, even in things I do, sometimes purposefully, there's going to be a trigger. But there is the courage that's required to sometimes talk about those things, knowing that I'm not doing it to be intentionally annoying or a shit disturber. But sometimes we have to come close to what seems like being a shit disturber in order to break a silence. Hmm. I would um, I, I, I would also say that my position ultimately is to end gender. The gender binary, I think, is a disaster uh, for all of us because it, by definition, mm-hmm. limits the ways that we can express our humanity. And I, I it won't be in my generation, but mm-hmm. I hope to God uh, in a generation to come and very soon that gender will simply be uh, the gender binary certainly will be a, no longer valid. And, um, but I, I want to get back to the question you were originally posing. And I, I think that for me, the, the way that I'm 
trying to write a book like the little me too book for men is not as a guide to help to tell men how to behave or how to be a human being, how to be a proper human being, because there is so much, uh, vast diversity in how we can express our humanity. What I'm trying to do is help men understand and whether you're gay, straight, trans, whoever you are to help you fully understand the machinery behind our dominant culture of masculinity, how that operates, how it functions. When, when we talk about and, and how it is weaponized politically uh, in the culture wars, in our, in our elections, all of that, because that guy in the White House, he is man box culture 101. <laughs> and I'll tell you one thing that I'm absolutely convinced about with him. That is not a happy human being. That human no. being is not happy. He's acting out. He's full of rage. He's a, he is death, but he is not happy. Mm-hmm. And it's no accident that the, the man box alpha male by the water cooler is exactly, exactly matches the performance of these angry male commentators in right-wing media. I mean, Sean Hannity is that guy. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump is that guy. And that that form of masculinity, uh, that dominant, screeching, angry, controlling voice of the narrative is sadly, after decades of man box culture conditioning, whether we agree with them or not, it looks powerful. It Mm. looks like strength. And and even those of us who absolutely oppose them 100 percent feel that sense of trepidation at challenging them because we've been conditioned all our lives to run from those guys. And that's the moment of courage that men need to face. Well, let's move into a, a, something of a wrap with some thoughtful or provocative questions. Mm-hmm. Kevin Spacey. <laughs> I wrote an article uh, a year or so when all of that hell broke loose and Anthony Rapp accused him of unwanted sexual advances and and then at the same time Kevin Spacey finally came out kind of like the not so secret secret mm. but there is this situation of a man who on the one hand um Alan Downs wrote a book called The Velvet Rage where he talks primarily about gay shame and that is the the shame that many gay men have because we grew up in the closet and the rest of the world, the man box culture said, well, you're wrong, you're bad, you're feminine, you're not man enough. And unless you actually deal with that when you become an adult and can really think through what all that social conditioning meant, you're you're going to have some challenges. And so mm-hmm. the bigger challenges, I think, for Spacey was you're in Hollywood, you're a leading man, you're playing, you're acting, you're performing the straight man. And all these other power factors. He was white highly respected, making a shitload of money, and a place of privilege. So some thoughts on man-bought culture and, and just the reaction from the gay community. They were pissed at him for coming out as a way to try to diminish the accusation of sexual assault. Well, it doesn't matter his sexual orientation, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter... Um, any of the narratives he tried to use to what what we're talking about in this case mm-hmm. is what we're talking about in any one of these cases where you are in a position of power 
and and you you use that power to try and uh, take sexual advantage of someone, mm-hmm. and that's a that can be a rich executive with a secretary. It doesn't matter. So this is power difference, power differential that we're talking about here. And and Hollywood used to be built on uh, sex in exchange for power. That's that's what it was built on for years. The casting couch, the the Warner Brothers, and the and the Metro Goldwyn Mayer, and all that was. That was the old way of doing things, and it just came to a screeching halt. And Kevin may have been uh, may have been one of the most extreme examples of power, and, and the way in which, when someone is called out on using their power in 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 an abusive way, uh, they try to squirm out from under it with some sort of a counter narrative. Mm-hmm. But but you can't. I mean, our culture is literally swarming with uh with sexual abuse and and aggression and and it's all about power and and what's fascinating is if you talk about women in corporate america the moment you know a woman has power is when she no longer gets hit on by men in that company hmm. they no longer are free to flirt and be a, and and play that hey i need a little sexual thrill from you cuz my day has been a little stressful so let me just play a little game with you for a second and you can do some un you know some unpaid emotional work for me. Oh. Because that's what men do in that context, right? In mm-hmm. the corporate context. And when a woman gets to a certain level in a company, gets a certain amount of power, that that ends. And that's why men hate them so much mm-hmm. because then they know finally that they don't get to have that one-up position over that woman. Oh. Men live, men who have not self-reflected around man box culture live and thrive on being dominant and, and viewing themselves as being above others. Mm-hmm. That's where they get their sense of, of uh, and the only way they can reinforce that for themselves is to be abusive toward those people and watch it play out and watch nothing happen to them. Well, perhaps my most provocative question before are some thoughtful questions. Where does religion, especially the more fundamentalist versions of religion, fit in with all of this? Well, I was raised by fundamentalist Christians in Texas, mm-hmm. and uh, my experience of um, of fundamentalist uh, Christian religion is that it is all about patriarchy. That's basically what it is. And it's a more extreme version of patriarchy because you're not only speaking for your manhood, you're speaking for God. So I personally, um, if you if you catch me on a bad day, I will tell you that religion may be more than most people can handle. <laughs> it is a, it can become a very dangerous thing in the hands of people who do not understand the implications of it. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, I fear, I, I fear for the, um, for the impact of religion in the lives of those people who are full of anger and rage because they use it to validate positions, uh, that are, that are harmful to all of us. Well, I just think, Mike Pence, for example, and the evangelical and dominionists that are working so hard to literally try and take over American government. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's frightening because all I see there is this uh, connection between absolute fear and the way to eradicate that is absolute power. Well, I've been up close with those people and I've uh, more recently, actually, too, um, 
a previous marriage um, put me in close proximity with my with some in-laws that were that way. And I can tell you, uh, you don't have to be very different from them. I mean, not very different. And their their contempt is palpable. And I don't know um, what part of Christ's message gives them the right to be full of such relentless loathing for difference. But um, but I, I I don't I don't see them as as Christian in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to the nice stuff. <laughs> what are you most proud of, perhaps with the work you've done or or not your work? What's really given you the greatest satisfaction or meaning or joy in your life? Well, I would say my my relationship with my son is mm-hmm. is huge for me, and I know that sounds like a platitude, but um, but he and I um, are in love with each other in a very significant daily powerful way. And that could end tomorrow. I know. I get it. I'm a parent. <laughs> but uh, but seriously, I, I love him so deeply. And, and I'm so um, surprised by the observations and the connections and the ideas that, that are arriving in my daily conversation with him. Um, he's amazing. I, I feel the same way about my, my partner, Saliha, as well. It, it's surprising to me what can happen in your life when you begin to connect in, in, in by way of relationship instead of role. Mm. Uh, you know, with so many of us play out our daily lives in terms of our role as a parent or our role as a boss or our role as a, a you know, an, an athlete or whatever we might be. Mm-hmm. And the relationship goes by the wayside. But I, I, I'm really proud of the aspect of I've been able and you know, I live with a huge amount of anxiety and I live with a huge amount of fear and all this stuff that was just jammed into my small body as a child that I still struggle to get past. But I have grown my ability to be in relationship and it, it is the single greatest experience in my life to have real genuine relationships with people. That's lovely. Well, what are you most hopeful for? I'm, I'm hopeful for our collective uh, shift toward um toward connection in the mm. world i think we've done the. i think mm. we've done the the money dance i think we've done the role dance i think we've done the racism and the sexism and the whatever dance and i think that dance is coming to a close which is why they're so angry and so loud at the moment yeah but when you look at the data on millennials um they are there's a significant shift away from giving they don't care as much about gender they don't care as much about sexuality whatever whatever you are you are Mm-hmm. And and they are leaning another way politically, and they are they are evolving very quickly uh, in terms of conversations, and and the they want to be fully revealed in their work lives. They they want to bring all of themselves. They don't want to cover. They don't want to hide. They're they're they are more genuinely expressing self, and so these things are all they they give me great hope. These things. I, I think we're in a foot race. Mm-hmm. I think you know masculinity could evolve into something much more human and much more connecting, or it could go very much the other way. And it's, there's no guarantee. This is why men need to speak up. This is why we need to engage. We are at the tipping point and it could go, we could improve life and living for everyone on this planet with a more connecting human version of masculinity, or it could go the other way. And all that we hold dear could be lost to us. Yeah. Well, if there were, 
a single piece of advice you could offer my listeners and knowing that most of them are gay men or in general LGBTQ, what would that piece of advice be? Well, if you're feeling isolated, and sometimes that's a big challenge for us, um, seek out men's work in one way or another. The Mankind Project uh, is a national organization that embraces all different uh, expressions of gender and sexuality and is a great place to to start that work. Um, men's groups, um, you know, be wary of men's work that that's tied to religion, but um, but otherwise find a men's group and and take that step toward connection because it, it's a powerful shift in your life. And, and if it does have for you what it's done for me, uh, it's a beautiful gift. Wonderful. And how can people find you? Um, if you want to find me, I'm, uh, on Facebook, uh, com slash remaking manhood. We have a great discussion group there. Um, I'm also at, uh, remaking manhood.com and Sally Han, my work is at thinkplaypartners.com. I'm on Twitter at remaking manhood. Uh, you can find me there too. That's wonderful. Any final thoughts? Wow, Darren. Wow. We, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And, and uh, you know, to, to everyone out there, we've got bridges to build, people. We don't, yeah. we don't need to be lonely anymore. Thank you, Mark. It's been uh, not only a learning experience, I've been excited all day <laughs> to do this. Um, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come and speak with me and just to open up this conversation more about what it means to be a man, <laughs> what it means probably to rephrase that, to be a human being and to embrace these characteristics that we've given a binary definition, masculine or feminine, but don't have to be understood as exclusive. And what those things are, those things we can do to, most importantly, going back to act up and silence equals death, that more of us have to speak up and speak out and break the silence and take the risk and have the courage and that hopefully people will support us in our voices of saying, no, I'm not going to stand for this anymore. Yeah. And I'm just not going to be alone anymore. Yeah. Thanks for your time, Darren. Wonderful. Thank you, Mark. All right. Bye. Bye.